Good evening. We're going to start our song service tonight with number 222. Uh, We'll sing verses 1, 2, and 5 of number 222 with verse 2, a cappella. next song we'll be singing number 204 turn your eyes upon jesus we'll sing all three of that one and we'll sing the second verse a cappella as well on that one number 204 <laughs> Thank you. 
song we'll be singing number 380 and we're gonna do something a little bit weird for the first three verses of rise up O men of God the first little phrase there rise up O men of God we'll have just the men sing on the first three verses and everybody on the fourth verse for that first little phrase of number 380 Last song this evening, we'll be singing number 234. Uh, we'll sing verses 1, 2, and 3 of number 234, Wonderful Words of Life. Thank you. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together. Old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Beloved, we and all the creation are called to worship and honor God. That we might do so in a way that's pleasing to Him. That He might set apart from us all that would distract us or keep us from worshiping aright. Let's join our hearts together in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank You that You have called us to this place and that You have opened our eyes to the duty and the privilege that is ours to worship You. Enable us to worship aright. Grant that Your Word might be proclaimed with faithfulness and that our hearts might be focused wholeheartedly upon You, becoming eager to give You the glory that You deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Hear now His greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 305. 305 stands as 1, 2, 5, 6, and 7.
Romans 10 says, With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. As God's people, we are called to confess the one in whom we believe. So using the words of the Apostles' Creed, Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Psalm selection this evening is Psalm 82. And this psalm is a word of warning to those who judge unjustly, who rule unrighteously, but at the same time, a word of comfort to those who are abused by those who rule over them, whether in the church or in the family or in the state, wherever their authorities abuse that authority, this psalm comes as a word of comfort. Because it reminds us that our God is King of kings and Lord of lords. That all of those who have been entrusted with authority here below will one day stand before Him and they will answer for how they have used or abused their authority. Ultimately, this is a psalm that is fulfilled in Christ who endured the worst injustice that man could pour out upon Him but in doing so was given all authority in heaven and on earth. So that on that last great day, as we'll see later on looking at Daniel 7, on that last great day, all men will stand before Him. And all who have judged unrighteously, He will condemn. And so Psalm 82 says, God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God. Judge the earth. For you shall inherit all the nations. What a song of comfort for those who, who are abused. 
So let's take that song up as our prayer, but also our confession. As we sing number 157, there where the judges gather, 157. That psalm calls on us to pray for our leaders and all who are in authority over us. But uh, as we also as we do that, we also need to be praying for the church. Um, you see in your announcement bulletins, uh, prayer request for the work of Pastor Yi Wang, who is a church planter among Mandarin speakers in Pas or in Anaheim, California. Um, also, a couple of updates. We prayed this morning for um, John Timmerman's grandson, Barrett. Um, the surgery had been scheduled for last Monday. Um, it has been delayed, actually, and is now scheduled for this coming Tuesday. So please keep Barrett in your prayers. Also, Bruce Smith, um, he has surgery scheduled now for May 3rd. Um, and it's a pretty significant surgery. So um, be in prayer for him and, and Linda. Uh, they're anticipating a six or seven day hospital stay after that surgery. Um, so that's a pretty big deal. So um, please keep them in your prayers as well. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no authority but that which You have ordained. And there is none who exercises authority, who will not stand before your throne and answer for the way in which they have used it. Father, we desperately need that assurance. Because we see in our world the misuse of authority. In our own land, once a bastion of Christianity, once a place where the rulers 
whereby and large those who believed in your word and trusted in your son, now we see so many rising up to power who neither know nor love you, but seek and serve only power and authority and opportunity for themselves. We grieve when we see that, Lord, knowing that they're misusing that authority that was given them to serve others and to restrain the evil in order simply to serve themselves and to line their pockets and to lift their own name on high. Father, we pray that You would humble the leaders of this land. That You would cause them to recognize that they are, whether they believe it or not, servants of Yours, established and ordained by Your will. And that they will answer for the way in which they use that authority. We pray for our president and vice president, their cabinet and their authorities. We pray for our lawmakers in Washington and our federal judges, that these might all bow before you and employ their authority to advance that which is good and righteous according to your perfect standard, according to your word. And that they would turn a deaf ear to those voices that call them to redefine what is true, to redefine what is right, to subjectivize the foundation on which truth stands. Likewise for Governor Whitmer and her cabinet, for our lawmakers in Lansing and our state judges, we ask, Lord, that you would raise up those who would use authority to serve you and to protect those who do well. And that you would humble and bring low those who seek only to serve men, those who redefine truth, those who do not believe in upholding their oath to uphold the Constitution and, and to do what is good and just and right. Father, we pray for our land, which is so divided. And we know that it's divided because men have denied truth. They have sought to rewrite a different narrative in which some people's allegations of truth are more valid than the allegations of truth of others. They have redefined history and sought to divide men on the basis of Race and gender and socioeconomic status. It's wicked, Father, because it is unjust. But we know that you are just and that you will hold to account all who persist in that divisiveness, in that straying from the truth. We ask, Father, that you would cause the leaders who are over us now to recognize the peril in which they stand as long as they pursue these divisive courses, and that You would humble them before Your holy throne. We pray, Father, that You would open the eyes of many in our land to see that there can be no peace, no unity, apart from You. You who are the one who serves as the foundation of all peace and truth. You whose Word is the bedrock on which truth must stand. We pray that you would bless the teachers of our land with a, a recognition and a growing 
conviction that making man the measure of all things is feeding poison to the children of our land. That it is only on the basis of the fear of the Lord that we can have any true understanding of reality itself. And if the edicts of man stand opposed to this, then cause them to fear you more than they fear man. Cause them to teach the truth no matter the cost. And cause the parents of our, our nation to rise up and demand that the truth and not fiction might be taught to our children. That reality and not lies might be used to mold and shape their worldview. And indeed, Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, that increasingly in our land, the parents might take up an active role in the guiding and molding and shaping of their children, that no more would they sit passively by while their children are molded into the image of God-haters, while their children are led astray from the truth, while their children are taught to hate you and reject you and to believe that man is divine and sits on the throne. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of many and that you would cause your church to no longer stand silently by, pretending that it is of no account and that it does not affect us when they seek to divide us on the basis of the color of skin, when they seek to divide us on the basis of gender, when they seek to teach our young ones that what they can clearly see with their eyes is a lie. Father, teach us to stand up and lovingly, but powerfully, challenge that false narrative. And show that the truth that comes from you is far more logical and powerful and comforting and good. And Father, we pray that you would continue to spread and to raise up the church that stands upon your truth. So many imitations of the church have existed in our land for so many years. Places where your word is not read, where your truth is not proclaimed, where the men who lead are not men, but mere husks of men who bow to the whims and the silliness of the mind of man. Father, remove them. Close their doors, silence their lips, and raise up instead those who confess wholeheartedly and boldly the truth of your word. And where your word is proclaimed, continue to mold and shape and form those ministers who proclaim it, those elders who teach and defend it, those parents who receive and disciple their children in the light of it. We pray for our own congregation. Lord, today we concluded our catechetical season. We pray that the lessons that have been taught would sink deep in the hearts of our children and that they would stand firm on this solid foundation of Your truth. And we pray that You would make the parents and the grandparents eager to continue applying those lessons to the hearts of their children. And make us all, Lord, to be passionate about knowing and applying and confessing Your truth. Lord, we ask Your blessing upon uh, the church abroad. We think of the work in Anaheim 
with Pastor Yi Wang and the Mandarin-speaking folks he pastors. We ask that you would strengthen that work and multiply it. And not just out there, but also here in Michigan. Lord, there are multitudes who don't yet know you. Cause the church to rise up and reach out to them. Make us to be eager to proclaim this glorious truth that you have entrusted to us. Father, we pray for those who are in particular need. We ask for comfort for those who grieve. We think especially of the the Grunewald family. Uh, We ask your comfort and your strength for them. We pray too for the Crosbys and others who grieve. Lord, we pray that you would, would provide precisely what they need. We ask for your care upon Barrett as he prepares for surgery this coming week. He's so little and in such need. Lord, we pray that you would Uh, Bless John's family as they seek to support and encourage that little boy. We pray for wisdom and skill for the doctors. Likewise for Bruce as he anticipates that surgery in a little over a week. We pray that you would give comfort to him and to Linda. That you would provide wisdom and skill for their medical team. And that you would use this, Lord, to show forth your power to bring about healing and strength. And now, Lord, as we look to Your Word and and the encouragement that it brings us about the present and about the future and about Your reign over all things, Father, we pray that You would use that Word to strengthen us, to deepen our conviction, and to send us forth eager to confess the God whom we serve, in whom alone is all our hope and strength. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, let us stand and sing again. Uh, Psalm 119. I'm sorry, it's not 119. 129. Psalm 129 calls us to remember and confess that the deliverance we've received in the past, it hasn't come by our wisdom. It hasn't come by our strength. It's come by the Lord. When we confess that, we teach the younger generations where to look, where to find their hope. And we remind ourselves where to look, that we might not go astray. So let's stand and sing Psalm 129. It's selection 271. We'll sing all the stanzas. 271.
Our scripture reading this evening is Daniel chapter 7. We're going back to Daniel. Now that Easter is behind us, we took our brief foray into Isaiah. Um, just a, a word about the section into which we're looking this evening. Uh, Daniel 7 is actually the start of one section, one division in Daniel, and the end of another. Um, Daniel has 12 chapters. The first seven are what we might call the historical chapters. They describe uh, Daniel's work as a statesman and a prophet. They describe certain vignettes within his time um, interacting with the people of, especially the rulers of, first uh, Babylon and then the Persian and Median kingdom. But then chapters 7 through 12 describe the prophecy that God gave to Daniel himself. And that prophecy, uh, it's not ahistorical, it's not absent from history. It's set in historical context, it describes uh, that which was coming, but the focus is not on the history. And Christians have often made a mistake in that. They've often sought to decipher exactly, and we see this especially in, in Protestant churches over the last hundred years. They want to know exactly what is Daniel foretelling? How does that fit with our age, with our days? Is Russia the bear? Is, you know, who's related by the, the, le the leopard? It's not about that. It's not seeking to explain what's coming next and what we can expect. No, no. It's helping us to understand history itself. As we live in the midst of history, God wants us to understand our place in it and where our comfort lies and what is coming at the end. Right? So it's not intended to interpret the headlines we read today, but instead to help us deal with those headlines looking to the true king. So this is the beginning of that section of, of Daniel's prophetic visions. But at the same time, it's the very last chapter in a different section. At the start of Daniel's book, like most of the Old Testament, Daniel was writing in Hebrew. But then at chapter 2, verse 4, he switched to Aramaic. That's interesting. Aramaic was sort of the English of their day. It was the, the language of the statesmen. It was the language that was understood by a multitude of nations. Uh, it was the language of business. And he continues in Aramaic through chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, he switches back to Hebrew. And there's some debate over the reason for that, but I think the reason, I think the reason's fairly straightforward. At the very beginning, he's talking about Israel's exile. Their being taken to Babylon and how they, as Israelites, sent out into the exile deal with that. He's dealing with the covenant people and what happens to them, so he uses the language of the covenant people. But then starting in chapter 2, which coincidentally bears a lot of similarities to chapter 7, which is the last chapter in that Aramaic section, he talks about world kingdoms. He talks not, not turning away from the kingdom of God, but the place of the people of God within the kingdoms of the world. And so he uses the language of the world's kingdoms. Assyrian. When he does that, that's not the end. 
he then turns back, starting in chapter 8, to the place of the people of God. What's going to happen to them? As they live spread out among the kingdoms, and as they look to what's coming next, what does God have in store for them? And when he does that, he goes back to Hebrew. He goes back to the, the language of the church. So this is the first section in that prophetic section, but it's also the last segment in the Aramaic. With that, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man, or literally the heart of a man, was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued, for, issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, 
until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth, king, the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, does it seem like the world is growing more and more bold in opposing God and His ways? Does it sometimes seem as though world leaders are becoming more fearless in promoting sin and increasingly less tolerant of those who would call it sin? If it seems that way, that's not merely your imagination. The world during this time is tormented by the powers of darkness. All who stand in the light, we make ourselves targets of those who love darkness in their hatred of God. So we can expect then that there will be a cost to confessing the light, a cost to confessing Christ. And yet, the one whom we confess is greater, and he shall give us victory in the end. That is the heart of the message that we find here in Daniel 7. And my friends, it's a lesson that we must understand and take hold of if we are to have comfort in the midst of a world that by and large hates the Lord. That's why God inspired Daniel to write this chapter. Here we find the first of Daniel's prophetic visions in which Daniel beholds the triumph of the saints on high. That's our theme. Daniel beholds the triumph of the saints on high. But triumph is not the first thing we see here. As we look at this vision, we need to understand how it's arranged. It's really divided in two parts. First, a declaration of the vision, then an explanation of the division. And within each of those two sections, we find, again, two parts. We find the part that talks about the growth and the spread of the kingdoms of this world, and then a part that talks about the triumph and the victory of the Lord in the end. So, we're going to jump around just a little bit. We're going to look at the first half of the vision and then at what God explains concerning that first half. Then we're going to go back and look at the second half of the vision and then God's explanation of that. And so the first thing we're going to see in the first half of the vision is how the saints of God are overwhelmed. The saints of God are overwhelmed by the corrupting beasts from below. You see, God wants us to understand how gracious and how amazing is the victory that he planned to provide for us. And so, in order that we might really grasp 
the significance and the weight and how essential is the victory that He gives us, He shows us the depth and the breadth and the darkness of the forces that are arrayed against us. Daniel tells us that he sees in his vision these beasts. Notice their origin. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four beasts arose out of that sea. Now the sea, to the land-loving Hebrews, was a terrifying place. You didn't find too many Jewish sailors. Because they regarded the sea as that which was terrifying. It was dark, it was deep, it was filled with mysterious creatures. It was the place to which men went and did not come back. Right? But it was more than just a fear of the ocean. It wasn't that at all. The sea to them represented chaos. Represented that which was unformed and untamed and untamable. In Genesis 1, we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When God made the world and all that was in it, it was an endless, vast, churning sea of chaos. And it was out of that that God began to create order. And it was in that order that we find that which is good. It was in that order and that forming of what God made that we find that which began to fulfill God's purposes and God's will. And so when they look on the sea, they think of that unformed chaos that was previous to what became good. And it was out of that that the beasts came. The sea was often in the the, the writings and the visions of the prophets a symbol for that which was outside of Israel, that which was outside of God's blessing. And so when they talked about the Gentiles, when they talked about the people that were living in active rebellion against God, they spoke of the sea. And he says it's out of the sea, out of that chaos, out of that rebellion, out of those people who live in and embrace rebellion against God that these beasts arise. And these beasts, though they differ one from another, they all speak of that which stands in opposition to God and which brings terror to the people of God. The first, he says, is like a lion. It's not a lion exactly, but it's like a lion as near as Daniel could describe. The lion, of course, is proverbial for the power of its paws and its jaws. What man can struggle and hope to overcome such a powerful creature? But this isn't just a lion, it's a lion with wings like an eagle. Wings which allow it to to soar high and spot its prey and swoop down with great power. So this this is a super lion, this is a super predator. There's nothing that's able to, seemingly able to conquer such a creature. But then he says this lion, with its wings like an eagle, its wings are removed. And it's made to stand on two feet like a man. And it's given, now our translation inexplicably to me, renders it the mind of a man. The word is lavav, it means heart. It's given the heart of a man. We hear echoes of Nebuchadnezzar in this because the lion represents a kingdom and a king. And it seems most appropriate that it represents Babylon. And that's what we saw in Babylon, right? was a kingdom that devoured with great power, that conquered and, and brought low kingdoms all across the face of the earth, in the, in the ancient Near East at least. 
But then their king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the personification of Babylon, he's humble, made to live for a time like a beast, but then set back on his feet, given knowledge and understanding and humility, so that he could bow before the Lord and acknowledge that he is the true God, that he is the true king whom all men must serve. But just as he recognizes this, just as he begins to live as he ought, that kingdom is displaced. There's a second kingdom. And this one is like a bear. A mountainous mass of predatory power, right? Bears are known for their their heavy-handedness. One swipe of their, their paws can send a man sprawling for the last time. And this bear says one side is lifted up. It's hard to picture exactly what it's saying there, but it indicates that there's a division. And in its teeth are three ribs. And it goes forth to devour. This seems most likely to represent the kingdom of Media Persia. A kingdom that was comprised really of two kingdoms. So there was a division within it. Which came to power by conquering three other kingdoms. Hence the three ribs. But it wasn't content with that, was it? Having coalesced all its power together, it went forth to conquer anything that was in its sight, anything that was before it. But then, a third rises over it. The third was an image to terrify because it was like a leopard. A leopard has the power and the cunning of a lion. But unlike a lion, it doesn't give warning of its presence. It gives no roar. It gives no growl like that of a bear. It hunts silently, it hunts secretly, and it pounces at the last moment. And this leopard, this leopard has four wings and four heads. Indicative of Greece, it would seem. Which went forth in the four directions of the compass and was divided into four segments under four leaders. It rose under Alexander, one leader, but then was divided under four leaders who brought it to its greatest height. Folks, these beasts were no mere vision. They were practically a road map of the anti-godly kingdoms that were and that were about to arise, all of which would present great challenges, great persecutions against the people of God. But then there's a fourth beast. And suddenly, this nightmare of a vision becomes inexplicably worse. Up to this point, Each beast, each kingdom, was represented in a way that was a bit more dreadful than the last. Each one representing a bit more of a concession to man's depravity. Each one partaking more of the sea, of the abyss, of the beast. But this final beast is so dreadful and terrifying and mighty that Daniel has no likeness for it. You can almost picture him leaning over his papyrus and saying it was like a... It was kind of like... He has nothing. Nothing that he has seen looked like this, seemed like this, could could really represent the terror that he felt by this. This beast seemed designed and created for the purpose of destroying. It had great teeth of iron. Its claws were made of bronze. It had horns which represent power. It had ten of them, a perfect complement of power. And it stopped not with tearing and devouring. It even trampled underfoot that which was left. And yet the terror of this final beast rested not merely in its physical presence. Because the terror multiplied spiritually with the the advent of another horn. 
Already it has this perfect complement of ten horns, but now a, a, another one rises up. It displaces three of the others, and this one, it doesn't just exercise power, it utters blasphemies. It blasphemes man and God alike. And it doesn't even silence its voice when the voice of the Lord speaks and the presence of the Lord draws near. Now what could possibly be foretold by such a horrendous image? That's a question worth wrestling with. The first three beasts are three kings representing three kingdoms and we can pretty easily see the likeness that they demonstrate to Babylon and Persia, Media and Greece. So it would stand to reason that this fourth kingdom represents Rome. But, according to what we read in the interpretation, he is to devour the whole earth and to wage war against the saints until the judgment. And Rome simply didn't have that breadth or last that long. And yet he does represent Rome. And all of the worst kingdoms to follow. It represents Rome in Rome's previously unreached expanse. But it also shows us that Rome typifies even worse things to come. Worse persecutions. Worse violations of justice. Worse events that would make men take refuge in Psalm 82 knowing that they had nowhere else left to turn. When we read of the ten horns and then of the little horn that exalts himself even against God, we read there of the Antichrist of whom John would later write. Antichrist, that proud and mighty ruler who exalts himself against men and against God, who wages war against the people who love the Lord because he hates God. The one by whom power and dominion are held for a time and times and half a time. Who is that Antichrist? Beloved, he is that evil incarnate who exalts himself at various times throughout history against God and man. He is that attractive son of the serpent who is worshipped and adored by all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. For him we have no name, but only a description. The description of a man who speaks boastful and proud words. The description of a mighty horn who's little. He doesn't look like all that much in person, but he exercises great power, wields great authority that overturns mighty kingdoms. It is a fool's errand to try to pin him on one person in the course of history because he manifests himself in so many. But always he wields an ungodly force that brings about persecution and death and suffering to those who would do right. Beloved Daniel says this vision left him ashen-faced and troubled of heart. And that's the right response. Because Daniel understood this is the terrible fate of the saints during this age of history. The kingdoms of this fallen world will not smile upon the saints of God. In fact, as man's depravity grows, so will the oppression that is poured out against God's people. Daniel saw the saints overwhelmed by the beasts from below. And folks, that is the theme of the era in which we now live. Verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Verse 25. 
He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. You get what that means? He thinks so much of himself, this Antichrist power, that he seeks to change the times. He seeks to turn the will of God to his own will. He seeks to overthrow that which God has ordained and bring about what he has ordained. He seeks to overthrow the law. God has said this is what's true. He says no, this is what's true. God says this is what is right. He says no, that is what is right. He seeks to overturn and change that which God has declared and almost inexplicably they, the people of God, shall be given into his hand. For a time, times, and half a time. In other words, as we go through this era of history, it seems like evil only grows and expands and spreads. And when it seems like we can stand no more, we enter into a new era of wickedness. And when it seems like there's a reprieve, because there are times of reprieve, right? Certainly the first 150, 200 years of America saw a reprieve, where the church has existed without significant persecution, where the leaders sought to at least pay lip service to God, if not actually serving Him. But those times of reprieve come to an end. The power of the evil one is, is renewed. But, that will not be the end. We'll come to that in just a minute, but no, that's not the end. And understand that this too is under God's sovereignty. The evil one, he wants you to believe that he is ultimate. That there is no escape from him. That the best you can do is ally yourself with him. It's a lie. God foretold, even ordained his coming. Whether he stands in the form of Hitler or the Pope during the age of the Reformation, or the Soviet Union, pick your evil leader, right? Pol Pot, doesn't matter. They're all manifestations of the little horn. They're all manifestations of evil directed against God that can't reach God, and so in their fury, they attack the saints of God. But God wants us to know this too is under His authority. This too was ordained by Him. This too He will use to bring men to an end of themselves to recognize that they can't stand on their own power, that they will otherwise be utterly undone unless they turn to Him. This too He uses to drive us in desperation, like Psalm 82 shows, to drive us in desperation, not to the kings that abuse us, but to the King of kings who can relieve us. So expect... Those headlines. Expect that tyranny. Don't be surprised when you see persecution and pain and suffering and injustice. Of course you do. We live in the age of the beast. But it's not the final age. We have a hope, a sure hope. And that too, Daniel shows us in his vision. Because even if we are overwhelmed for a time and times and half a time, an end shall come. And in that end, the, the saints of the Most High shall be exalted by the conquering man from above. That's the other thing we see here. It's clear that Daniel's vision leaves him shaken. But he's not undone by what he saw. The ability that he receives to stand firm 
comes with the knowledge and only with the knowledge that there is someone infinitely greater than that fourth beast. That that someone greater has the power to tame and overthrow all the beasts and that their end is drawing near. And that's exactly what we see in this vision. Look with, the, with me to the second half of the vision. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. What is this scene? Beloved, it is the same scene that John would later describe in Revelation 20. It is that last great day. When right in the middle of one of the times, it all comes to a sudden stop. And all of mankind who ever has lived is ushered together and brought before the throne of God. And that great beast that has oppressed the people of God is brought to an end. There's fire issuing forth from God and from His throne. That's the fire of judgment. That's the fire of cleansing. By means of that fire, all who have stood arrayed against Him will experience His wrath and the consequence for their rebellion. By that fire, all the earth, all the creation will be cleansed from the stain of sin under which it has labored since Adam committed that first wicked sin. By means of that fire, the saints shall be purified and brought into the fullness of their perfection. Around Him, the Ancient of Days, the One who is before all that exists because He made all that exists. Around Him exist thousands of thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands. The saints and the angels and all the creation professing His glory and His goodness and His eternality. And the books are laid open before Him. The books in which are written every word and every deed and every desire that every man has ever engaged in. And also the Lamb's book of life. Which declares that the deeds of sin and wickedness of those who have been chosen and have turned to Christ, that's all been paid. We are His, our Price has been paid and we've been brought near. That's what we're seeing here. This is a, a great comfort for us. Because it reminds us that God is. Although the horn speaks boastfully of Himself and with contempt against God's people, yet there is no cause for doubt, no call for attending to His boastful words because God is and God is enthroned on high and God is greater than all of those beasts put together. And one day soon He will bring their boastful words to an end. When that time comes, when that day dawns, Antichrist will be no more. Though He will boast to the very last moment, it is our God who will silence His voice. And He will be cast into the lake of fire. And He will be heard no more. You see, the time of this beast's dominion is determined not by it, but by God. The beast, the Antichrist, he rules for a time. And then for times. And it seems like he's going to go on for even more times. But then, right in the midst, he's, he's cut off. He's forced to account for all of his wickedness, all of his rebellion. And he is found unable. He's destroyed. He's cast out in judgment. Verse 25 says that God's people shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half time. But... 
The court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And just like that, the enemy's dominion is done. He's judged. He's removed. There is no more. And along with him goes away the persecution of the saints. We know that day is coming. That end of the persecution of God's people in part because God told us in Daniel's vision and in part because the kingdom which typified, the kingdom which first demonstrated this fourth beast has also come to an end. Rome did not fulfill the vision of the fourth beast, but it was the first to stand in its place. It was the first to fill out that vision. And where is Rome today? Rome was fierce. Never before had a kingdom spread over such an extent of the world. Never before had a kingdom so perfected cruelty and wickedness and violence also against the people of God. But where is Rome today? It is no more. It is nothing but dust and ashes. It has come to an end. And just as Rome, that first manifestation of the beast, so every manifestation of the beast and the beast itself who stands behind it all shall soon come to an end in the judgment of our God. Take comfort in that. In the knowledge that though he boasts, that though he exercises wicked power against the saints, his day is soon coming to an end. And when that day comes, what shall happen to the saints who have so long been oppressed? There lies the truly joyous news. Daniel shows us that with the judgment of the little horn, with the judgment of the oppressor, we see the fullness of the kingdom of another. Verse 13, that I looked, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This new king appears as one like a son of man. Not merely a man, but one like men, like us. One who has come as one of us, but who is more than us. Who is also fully God. Who is able, unlike us in our sin, to enter fearlessly into the presence of God and to bring us with him. This divine image bearer comes with the clouds of heaven. He is the one described by the psalmist in Psalm 104 when he says he makes his clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers fire, his ministers a flaming fire. The Son of Man comes as a warrior and a conqueror from on high. He appears on the clouds of heaven being received before the throne of our Heavenly Father. From the judge He receives all power, all authority, all dominion. And never shall His dominion pass away. Because He has conquered and now He rules. This is a picture of Christ. And in Daniel's vision He has triumphed. He comes proclaiming the defeat of the enemy. And the absolute triumph of His kingdom. It's already happened, hasn't it? Already He has told His people, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Me. And yet the beast, 
the little horn, he still speaks boastfully, doesn't he? He still mutters his threats. He still exercises a degree of power. But that day comes to an end. That boasting will soon be silenced because Jesus sits on the throne and very soon He will come with power on the clouds and He will reveal the victory that is His. He will reveal the power that has been given to Him. And that's not even the culmination of all the good news because when He comes, when He displays the triumph that is His, we will come with Him. Look at verse 27. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Now how can this be? That the dominion and the kingdom are given to the people of God if they were just given to the Son of Man. Well, my friends, the kingdom and the dominion are given to the Son of Man and also to us because we are one. By faith in Him, we've been united to Him. And so what is true for Him is true for us. What is given to Him is given also to us. We have been made, according to Romans 8, joint heirs with the Son of God. He has been working during this age in the midst of all the oppression that we endure. He has been working in us and through us so that we might bear His likeness and inherit His inheritance with Him. Do you recognize the significance of what Daniel's saying here? Sometimes it feels as though the world is battering and beating us. Because it is. The world is attacking us corporately. There is more persecution now than there ever has been in history. In part because there are Believe it or not, more Christians now than there have been in most ages of history. We don't see it much in our land, but boy, throughout the world, the persecution of God's people is immense. Satan is inflamed with fury against the people of God. But that day is coming to an end. And already now, we have been joined to Christ. And His victory will be given into our hands. Not only does He sit on the throne, but we sit on thrones at His right hand. And very soon those thrones shall be revealed. This world will be cleansed. And all of it will be entrusted into our hands. Into our power. That we might use it all to glorify God. To magnify His power. So be encouraged. When you experience the struggle and the pain and the suffering that this world might bring you. Be encouraged when men speak ill of you, when people mistreat you, when people respond to your overtures of love with hatred. Be encouraged to know that this soon shall end. Our victor has already been seated on high. His victory has already been secured and very, very soon His enemies and ours will be removed and our victory in Him will be revealed. And so we can serve Him today, even in the midst of those boastful words of the wicked one. Even in the midst of the suffering that we still endure, we can serve Him with joy, with confidence. Because that day is coming very soon. And when it comes, no more will you struggle against sin and temptation. No more will you endure the, the slanders and the suffering that come from the evil one. They will be no more. 
but you will know the fullness of the power of Christ within you and around you. And you will use it all to glorify God with your lips, with your mind, with your hands, with your creativity, with your all. That day is coming very soon. So stand firm. Do not doubt. And look for the one whose coming is soon. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need the confidence that this, vic- this, this vision bestows upon us. We need the certainty that Jesus reveals here to us. Because so often we are overwhelmed by the ugliness and the hurt of this world. We're overwhelmed by the attacks and the oppression. We're overwhelmed by the battle against sin within us. We're overwhelmed with sadness at the consequence of sin that's seen in the death of loved ones and the separation of those who love one another. We need this certainty that Jesus' victory will soon be revealed and manifested for us and in us. So until that day, Lord, refresh us with the knowledge of this victory that you have proclaimed through Daniel. Strengthen our faith in you through that vision, through that proclamation. And enable us to stand firm, trusting in Christ, looking to Him, confident in His victory. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are not the first to know the struggle and the hardship of life in a fallen world by any means. Our forefathers knew the same experiences, but they endured it. They stood firm in the face of it by looking to Christ. And so must we do. So let's stand and confess that together as we sing number 476. Number 476, God of our fathers.
this evening is for the Pregnancy Resource Center. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given to us so richly. And we pray that You would receive our gifts as a token of our gratitude. And Lord, as we, as we look to this great sin of our land of abortion, we thank You that You have given us the opportunity to provide an alternative. To provide hope to those who feel that they have no other options. We pray that You would use our gifts to that end, that they might receive not just physical hope, not just diapers and clothes and education, but also the knowledge that Christ is greater than their crisis, and that He will get them through if they turn to Him, if they trust in Him, enabling them to raise up these Children, unexpected though they be, to know that He is the provider. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing together during our offering number 400, I'm sorry, 242. Number 242.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.